You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Reading will begin with verse 19, and we're going to read through verse 34. It's like everyone's found their place. John chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, Why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning. As we look to your word, we look to you. As we read your word, we hear your voice. And as we seek to try to understand your word, uh, we look to you again. And we ask that you would be pleased to teach us this morning. We ask that you would be pleased to open our hearts and our minds to these things which you intend to communicate through this particular passage. Oh Lord, we recognize that we cannot do this without you. And by virtue of this prayer, oh Lord, we ask and we confess Apart from you, we can do nothing. But, O oh Lord, we are greatly encouraged. We ask that you, by way of your Holy Spirit, will teach these truths to our hearts, bridle our wills, take our affections, and point them to you, O oh Lord. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. I want to point your attention to verse 19. 
to really the first verse of our text this morning, and that is going to be really the springboard. I thought about doing, a, as by way of introduction this morning, doing a review of verses 1 through 18, but I think we're going to do plenty of that as we go along. So why don't we just go ahead and look at verse 19, and we'll use in many ways as a springboard the word testimony. You see the word testimony. Some of us may have the word um, um, What's the word the King James translation uses? It's the, uh, uh, does anybody have a King James? My mind just went blank on the word. <laughs> record, thank you. This is the record. Um, who would think I would forget that? Um, but record, testimony, record. Uh, this is the testimony of John. This is the record of John. And um, we find that in this particular verse, uh, the Jews... This would be the leadership, if you will, the leadership of Jerusalem. Uh, The Jews have sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask John, who are you? Now, we could immediately, we probably should ask a question. We should say, well, what is this about? Why why are the Jews sending this delegation, if you will, uh, to check on John? Now, if we're familiar with the other gospel writers, we already know the answer. And if we would have lived in this time, in this uh, vicinity, we would also know the answer. We would know, we would know that John has been preaching out into the wilderness and that he's been attracting these very large crowds. In fact, you don't need to turn there, but let me just, let me just share with you from Mark's gospel, uh, Mark chapter 1. Uh, We're told there that uh, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and that all of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, so we have these big hordes of people, if you will, going out into the wilderness, out into the Judean countryside in order to hear John preach, in order to be baptized by him. And I think really what really triggers this delegation isn't so much the preaching. I do think they probably would have still sent a, uh, a delegation out to see uh, John to find out what's going on because of the big crowds. But I think what's really bugging them is the baptism which we'll get to here uh, in a little bit. I think it's the baptism that is bothering them. But nevertheless, the Jews send these priests and Levites from Jerusalem to inquire about who John is. Now, there's an implied question here between verses 19 and 20. And the implied question is somebody must have asked John if he's the Christ. Because in verse 20... John's, we're told that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And do you see how emphatic that verse is? I mean, it could just simply say, he said, I'm not the Christ. But notice what it says. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed. It's very emphatic. I am not the Christ. Okay, okay, John, you're not the Christ. Then are you Elijah is the next question. Now, why would they ask him that? Well, again, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to the second to the last verse of the Old Testament as we have it in our English Bibles. 
This is not the second to the last verse in the Hebrew Bible. The books are in a different order. But in our English Bibles, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Read this way. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So here we have a word from the Lord, a prophetic utterance, that at the time of John the Baptist's ministry is about 400 years old. And it is this prophecy where the Lord is promising to send Elijah before the day of the Lord, right? We're told in verse 6, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, if you believe your Bible as we believe our Bibles, and as people in the first century believed their Bibles, what were they expecting? Well, the Lord has promised to send Elijah. So they're expecting at some point Elijah is going to show up. Now, furthermore, if you're familiar with the other gospel writers, you're also familiar with how John is dressed. How is John dressed as he comes out preaching? Is he wearing Calvin Klein? Is he wearing Dockers? What is he wearing? He's wearing camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And if we're familiar with 2 Kings and we're familiar with the ministry of Elijah, how was Elijah dressed? In camel's hair and a leather belt. So he kind of looks like Elijah, I guess. We don't have any pictures, but... That's how Elijah dressed. That's how John dressed. It's only natural, they would ask, are you Elijah? Now, what does John say? John says, I am not Elijah. And this is a curious answer because some of you will be aware that Jesus says that he was Elijah, doesn't he? Sometimes people will ask that question. Hey, uh, uh, Pastor Rick, um, help me with this. John says he's not Elijah. Jesus says that he is. Who's right? Is it is it is it? Is it Jesus or is it John? Well, the thing in theology, one of the interesting things about theology is they're both right. I say, what? How can they both be right? Well, you know, theological points are often like coins. I forget who said that. Someone likened it to a coin. On a coin, on a quarter, we have heads and we have tails, right? On the same coin. There's a sense where Uh, Is John Elijah? In terms of Elijah's person, the answer is no. John the Baptist is John the Baptist. Elijah is Elijah. So how is it that Jesus says that John the Baptist is Elijah? Well, because John the Baptist comes in the ethos and the character of Elijah and fulfills the prophecy. So you see, they're really onto something when they ask, are you Elijah? John is not lying when he says no. He is not the person of Elijah. He is John the Baptist. But he is coming. He does come in the spirit and the character of Elijah. So teaches Jesus. Does that make sense? It's how we sort that out. So are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Well, the next question they ask is, are you the prophet? Now, where does that come from? Well, that comes, you know, again, you don't need to turn there. But Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's a promise that Moses conveys in verse 15. Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. 
It is to him you shall listen. So here's this ancient promise given by God. And it was understood and interpreted in various ways during the first century. The interesting thing about the first century is there's a lot of messianic expectation during this time. You've heard me say this before. And even in our study of John's gospel, we're going to see that. Because when Jesus, for example, when he goes into Samaritan, meets the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, one of the things that even the Samaritan woman says to Jesus is, I know Messiah is coming. I know he will come. That's one of the places, the many places where we see there's a lot of messianic expectation. Now, that expectation was varied. Some uh, expected him to be a, a priestly Messiah, if you will. Some expected him, many expected him to be a political Messiah, if you will. So there was, there was some diversity as to what the Messiah would look like, who he would be, but there's a lot of messianic expectation. And some believed that the prophet whom Moses speaks in Deuteronomy 18.15 would be the Messiah himself. And of course, that's correct. Others believed that the prophet of whom Moses spoke of would be like a, a person who would come just before the Messiah. So you have this diversity, if you will. People trying to understand the prophecy and trying to sort it out. Uh, and there was a diversity of interpretation there, as we, as, we would, as we would certainly expect. So they ask him, are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? He says, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. <laughs> as one commentator said, William Hendrickson said many years ago, you know, they, they can't just go back to Jerusalem and give them a bunch of no's. Well, what did he say? He said, no. He said, no. He said, no. <laughs> you would almost expect you bumbling fools. Get back out there and ask him again. They say to him, well, then, who are you? And in verse 23, John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now, you'll notice that we are studying the testimony or the record of John, right? John the Baptist. And thus far, what have we really been considering? We've been considering his identity, haven't we? His identity. Now, as we consider his identity here, we're segueing into his call. His identity. Is he the Christ? No. Is he Elijah? No. Yes and no. But no. Let's say no for now, okay? Uh, when we're studying Jesus' words in Matthew 11, then we'll, we'll say yes, and we'll do it that way then. Just teasing you now. Um, some of, many of you, their mouths are going, I can't tell if you're laughing, if you're crying, if I can't tell, I can't tell what's going on. <laughs> I just lost my train of thought, too. Jim says, I better get my mask back on back. There. Jim, you're so far away from everybody. I think you are fine. <laughs> Nevertheless, this has covered his identity, right? And now we, we, he begins, he says, who are you, John? He says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Now, they would have recognized these words as the words of, of Isaiah. Because this is not an obscure prophecy. Chapter 40, we have chapter 40. The, the verses and chapters and, and, and versification of the Bible was done much later. They didn't have chapters and verses. But they would have understood. They would have known 
What is John saying? He's saying, I'm the one who was prophesied by Isaiah about 700 years earlier. I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now, they say something very interesting after that. If you look at verse 25, they ask him, then why are you baptizing? See, I think this is what's bugging them. And this, this is going to be an important key to understanding some of this, I think. I think this is why it's bugging. Okay, so you're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. What authority do you have to be baptizing? What are you doing baptizing? In fact, that's what they say. Why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Notice how John answers. Verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, where does John get his authority to do what he's doing? Well, we know the answer to that. We studied that last week. Now, I didn't say much about it because I knew that we would be covering it uh, this morning. But if you look back to verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is John the Baptist. Where does John get his authority? He was sent from God. In the original, the word's apostolo. It's the word we get apostle from. He is sent. He is sent from God. So here we see, it, where's his authority come from? God is sending him. Verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. There's this word witness. You know this word witness and the word testimony is the same word. It's the same word in the original. It's the word we get the, the, the English word martyr from. The Greek is the martyrion. We get the English word martyr from this. To martyr is to witness. To be a martyr is to be a witness, if you will. Um, so he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, back to his call. Where does he get, where does he get his authority uh, for his call? Well, he's sent from God himself. That's where he gets his authority. And his call is to make straight the way of the Lord, right? That's his charge. His charge is to make straight the way of the Lord. Now, how is he going to go about doing that? And before we discuss how he's to go about doing that, what exactly does that involve? Well, it involves removing obstacles. I, you know, one time I, I can remember I was going to the seminary, actually, and I was in Pittsburgh, and it was when President Bush, who was president at the time, had just flown into uh, Pittsburgh Airport and was traveling downtown. Now, you want to see something really weird. I'm about 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, you, guess what? You weren't getting on the parkway. You want to talk about weird. 8 o'clock in the morning, I don't remember what day it was, but a weekday, 8 o'clock in the morning, and I, I went, I, I can't remember, it's Camel Run Road or something. I can remember traveling through Carnegie, and there's different places where you can look over and see the parkway. It was really weird to not see a single car out there on the parkway. Both ways. 
They just close the parkway. Why? They remove all the obstacles. So the president can fly into, into the airport, get in the car, get in the motorcade, and go straight to his destination. Why is that so important? It's dangerous for leaders like that to be stopped somewhere. It's, it's just dangerous. This was commonly done for kings when they were traveling great distances where people would go out ahead of them and remove all the obstacles. Now, of course, this is being used figuratively, isn't it? There's never a point when Jesus is in any danger of any kind. He doesn't need our protection. We need His. This is figurative. Now, what obstacles are there for the Lord? What exactly is this work that John has been charged to do? Well, I think we get the first clue simply by looking at John's ministry. And there's one thing that is so interesting about John's ministry is that he is never looking at himself. Look, look, look at verse 6. There, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So what's, his, what's he on about? He's on about the light. Who is the light? We were talking about this last week. The light is the Word, right? Who is the Word? Well, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the Son. Second person of the Trinity, right? We have the Father and the Son. The Son is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God, correct? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 14, and we have seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father. So in the beginning was the Father. In the beginning was the, was the Son, and the Son was with God, and the Son was God. And the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. And in the Son is life, and that life was the light of all men. And John comes bearing witness to the light, right? Notice verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. That's looking away. He's looking away from himself. His assignment is to look away from himself. Verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. See there, he's looking apart, away from himself again. We'll say more about that verse here in a few minutes. But if we keep on moving down, uh, verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. This is interesting because here comes this delegation. And they're asking John, you know, what do you say about yourself? Probably tough to get an interview with John at this point, as busy as he is and all these people all around, you know, and News 9 is outside and they want an interview with him because they want to see what's going on. And CNN and Fox News, they're in line to see what's going on here. You see, that's the kind of thing that's happening. People are coming all, all from Jerusalem, all from Judea. They're coming out to see, to see John. Now, the temptation to want to be a little bit full of yourself I think would be there, wouldn't it? If you were going to be a little bit full of yourself, wouldn't the temptation to be a little bit full of yourself be there right now? What does John say? Verse 26, I baptize with water. But immediately he looks away from himself. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. Many of you know that the, the, the meaning behind that figure of speech. To untie someone's sandals was a, uh, 
was something that wouldn't even be asked of some of the lowliest servants. This was an assignment that only the very lowliest of servants would be given to do. And John is saying here, listen, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. See how he's looking away from himself? If there was ever a moment where he would want to maybe gloat or maybe glory in himself, well, it's now, isn't it? But he's looking away. He's looking away from himself. Hey, you look down to verse 29. He says, this is the next day, of course. The next day he sees Jesus coming. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God. What's the word behold mean? Look, see, observe. He's looking away from himself, isn't he? We can just continue to go on. You're going to see that in every aspect of every way. John bore witness. Um, He says in verse 31, uh, verse 30, let's look at verse 30. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. And what he means by that is he didn't know Jesus to be the Messiah is what he means by that. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Everywhere we look, John is on about himself. No, to the opposite. He seems to be in many ways emptied of himself, looking looking away from himself. Now, why draw so much attention to this? I draw so much attention to this because we have a problem. And our problem is we spend 99.9% of our time looking where? To ourselves. That presents an enormous obstacle to the way of the Lord. Now, what is John leading people to do just by virtue of the way he operates and does ministry? It's to look away from yourself. See, a pastor like that's just going to make you look away from yourself because he's always looking away from himself. And this is really where this has to start. You know, there was a, some of you be familiar with J.C. Ryle. Is anybody familiar with J.C. Ryle? A tremendous author from the 19th century. And he wrote commentaries, devotional commentaries on all four Gospels. And his, 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 you would love his, if you have never read his stuff, you'd love it because it, he wrote it with the father of the household in mind so that he could share these readings as devotions and family worship at the dinner table. So they're typically an easy read, but make no mistake about it, they're very, they're, they're, it's just full of gospel food. And in his comments on these verses, he talks about two things. First, he talks about the great humility of John the Baptist. Uh, if I might loosely paraphrase what he writes, he says that all of the great men and women of the faith, they varied in many ways. Their gifts, their skill sets, and what have you varied in many ways. But they all have one thing in common. What they have in common is their humility. And here we see John. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? 
I'm the voice. See, humility isn't putting, you've heard me say this many times, humility isn't putting yourself down. In fact, many people, in many times, when we put ourselves down, we're full of pride. We're putting ourselves down because we think we should be way up here. Whatever gives us the idea, impression that we could ever be way up here in the first place if it isn't for pride. Humility is not putting yourself down. Humility is seeing where you belong. John knows his assignment. I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And his singularity is just amazing, isn't it? His singularity is just amazing. Humility. You see his great humility, but he's pointing away from himself. The second uh, application that J.C. Ryle makes, not just J.C. Ryle, but many commentators make, and it's right, is in the pulpit. It's the pulpit. Pastors should be the first in every congregation to be looking away from themselves. But unfortunately, oftentimes, that is not the case. See, what will happen to a congregation if the pastor is all about himself, if the pastor is all on about himself all the time, do you know what that's going to do? going to have a couple of effects. One is the congregation is going to become all about the pastor. He's going to, they're going to, the congregation will become all about the pastor or they'll leave because the pastor's so full of himself. And the congregation, the congregation will always be going on about the pastor. Pastor this, pastor that, pastor this, pastor that. Because we can't simultaneously be all full of ourselves and all full of Jesus. Can't be done. You have to choose one or the other. And so the first, op- the first obstacle we see here is John points away from himself. People need to be turned away from themselves. We need to be turned away from themselves. Pastors need that. Pastors are often full of themselves. We can be so full of ourselves. And we need your prayers for that. It just need your prayers for that. We need to be turned away from ourselves. And let's just think about our culture. Let's think about many of the voices. We're thinking about John the Baptist being a voice. Let's think about many of the voices that are in our culture. What, does, what, what do people believe in our culture? What do people often believe? Well, one of the things we often believe is that we are good enough, don't we? Talk to people about Jesus. What do, what do people often believe? The old famous EE question, you know? When I was in seminary, we had to knock on doors in Pittsburgh and ask the evangelism explosion a question. You know, you go and you knock on the door, a person answers the door, you're out there kind of... You're trembling in your shoes. <laughs> and you ask the question, if you were to die today and you were to go to heaven, the Lord was to ask you why he should let you in heaven, what would you say? And the most, by far the most common answer is, well, you know, I've always tried to live a good life and I always tried to do to others what I would want them to do to me. And, 
and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do people believe? They believe they're good enough. We believe we're good enough in our sins. We're fine. We're good enough. Now, how do we ever come to such a conclusion? We do that by looking inward. We look at our performance. We look at what we have done. And we look inward to the inner judge. You see, it's before the standard of the inner judge that we put ourselves and submit ourselves. And before the standard of the inner judge, the inner judge says, you know what, Rick, you're in pretty good shape. I mean, after all, look at that other guy. You're in pretty good shape compared to that other guy. Or we'll say something like, well, you've never done any really, really, really bad things. See, we have to be pulled away from that. We have to, we have to be used by God to pull others away from that. We need God to pull ourselves away from that. Most people today believe everybody is going to heaven. That's what most people believe. I say, well, how do you know that, Rick? Well, you, you can know that from a couple ways. One is if you ask people general questions about the afterlife, most people will say they believe in an afterlife. And if you ask them, if you ask them, well, are you going to be part of the afterlife? Then you'll get answers like, well, I hope so. Uh, I think so. All of these answers are looking inward. I think so. I believe so. I think so. What is the standard? Where is the revelation? It's all inward. It's all looking into self. But here's where we really find out. And, and this, is, this is a sensitive one. This is a sensitive one. So let me handle this with care because this is a painful one and it's a sensitive one. But when you go to the funeral parlor, what do you hear? You go to the funeral parlor to pay honor and respect to a loved one or a member of the community or a loved one of a friend, and the person who is deceased has never professed Christ, has never gone near Christ, has never given any indication that they believe in Christ. And yet what is commonly said, I know they're in a better place now. I know that the suffering is over now. This is unbiblical. How do we come to these conclusions? It's not from the scriptures. It's from reasoning within ourselves. We have to be pride. See, this is one of the big obstacles of making straight the way of the Lord is to be being pride from this constant looking to self. I could go on for a long time about the cancers of this disposition of constantly looking to self. But let's move on. John is calling us to look away from ourselves just by virtue of his ministry, isn't he? But he's not calling us to stand out in the yard and just kind of gaze off like this. He's not calling us just to walk around and look at nothing He's calling us and pointing us to look to Christ, isn't he? To look to Christ. To look to Christ. And again, let's look at these verses. Verse 7, John comes as a witness to bear witness about what? The light. What is he on about? The light. 
He's not the light, verse 8, but came to bear witness to the light. Verse 15, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He's pointing to who? He's pointing to Christ. You go to verse 26, right after John tells the delegation who he is, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's pointing to Jesus. And then most, most clearly, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming toward him and what? Behold. In other words, look. Look. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. It's pointing people to Jesus. We have to quit looking to ourselves so that we can look to Jesus. One of the leading obstacles is this, this infatuation with ourselves, this addiction with ourselves. And we have to begin to look to Jesus. Thirdly, another obstacle is repentance. Repentance. John is baptizing, and I think that's the big problem. I, I think the baptism is the big issue here. Why, are the leader, why is the leadership in Jerusalem sending a delegation out to John? I think what's really irking them is the baptism that's going on. Well, what's, so, what's, what's so wrong with the baptism? Baptism was well known in the first century. It was practiced as a purification rite. Uh, but it was generally practiced by Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. And in the first century, it was usually uh, uh, self-administered. They baptized themselves. But you, you didn't baptize Jews. We get a hint of what's going on, and you may want to turn here. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Because we get a hint of what's going on in, in that chapter. There's many other places we could go. In fact, we could, we could go to John chapter 8. But look at, look at Matthew Chapter 3, you know, if you look at verse, verses 1 and 2, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But look at verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, what? You brood of vipers. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now look at verse 9. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Aha! This is what's going on. You're going to baptize me? I am a child of Abraham. Now, it is true that all true believers are children of Abraham. But it's, it's a spiritual connection, not a biological one. They're pointing to a biological connection. Who is this guy out in the wilderness baptizing children of Abraham? I think this is the problem. Repentance? Yeah. 
What happens to the delegation, by the way? Has anybody noticed? I mean, we read, we're reading through this passage and we're reading through this passage and where's the delegation? Where do they go? You notice they just kind of vanish, don't they? That's often the case, isn't it, when you share the gospel? When you share the gospel with people and they, they, they listen and you can see on their face, uh, okay, and you finish and maybe some politeness will be exchanged. Okay, thank you. What's happening in that moment? Well, God could be doing whatever God could be doing. But oftentimes what hap- what's happening in that moment is we're saying, I know better. I know better. This delegation comes out to find out who John the Baptist is. Are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. All right, then why are you baptizing? Why are you baptizing? Well, verse 26, look at it. I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Why don't we have a record of them saying, well, could you take me to him? Could, could you introduce me? Where might I find him? Instead, it's almost like the delegation just evaporates, isn't it? Why is that? Because they knew better. You can almost imagine them going back to Jerusalem. Well, what'd you find out? Well, you know, it's this guy. He's out there making all this noise and kind of dressed like Elijah, making all this noise, saying all this stuff and talking about somebody whose sandals he's not worthy to untie. I don't know what he's going on about. I think he's had too much sun. Yet Jesus, what's Jesus say about him? It's almost like we could read between the lines and say, oh, you guys think you know better, huh? You think you know better. Well, what does Jesus say about John? Well, Jesus says this about John. I can tell you among those born women, there's no one greater than John. Why do we do that? Why, after hearing a gospel presentation... Do we check out? It's because in our pride, we think we know better. Here's the bottom line. A lot of people are mounting evidence and trying to get evidence and say, oh, if we and I used to think that way. I remember when we had our music store and I was so excited about Jesus. I'm telling people about Jesus. People ask me questions. And I thought if I could just start gathering all this evidence and I could just bring all this evidence and tell everybody all this evidence, they're, 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 they're just educate people and they're going to know. And, and that's all. You know what? That's not it at all. There's three things going on. There's pride, there's sin, and there's rebellion. In our pride, we say we know better. It's against the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1, what's he tell us? Everybody knows that God exists because you can look around and see God exists. Well, how else can we explain our getting here? Everybody knows that God exists. The problem is we love our sin, don't we? Why do we sin? 
It's because we like it. And there is this certain romance with rebellion. There's this certain romance that the fallen human heart has with being a rebel that we desire. That's what's going on. These are obstacles that must be removed to make way for the Lord. Because while these obstacles remain, our hearts are blocked. Our hearts are blocked. Now, we've looked at his identity. We've looked at his call. Let's take a look briefly at his message. His message. And verse 15, which I kept pointing to and saying, more about this to come, more about this to come. Let me make good on my promise because sometimes I do that and I forget. (laughs) And I don't. This morning I'm going to remember. John chapter 1, verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. What does that mean? Well, in terms of his human nature, Jesus comes after John. John's born before, before Jesus, right? But we, in our study last week, in terms of Jesus' divinity, he's certainly before John, isn't he? And John is professing the divinity of Jesus there. That's what he's professing. He's saying before, he's saying right here, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John is talking about the divinity of Jesus. He does it again. Uh, Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me, saying the same thing, isn't he? And then he says in verse 32, he bore witness. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now this is happening during Jesus' baptism. One of the reasons that John's baptizing is so that the Messiah will be revealed. And the Holy Spirit has told John that as he is baptizing the one who is to come, he will see the Holy Spirit descend upon him. And this is what John is talking about. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now that is a privilege that only God could have, isn't it? But more clearly, verse 34, And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. What is his message? His message is that Jesus is divine. That Jesus is divine. And his message is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Verse 29. We could spend a lot of time on this. I'm not because we're going to develop this as we go along. One of the tricky things I'm finding of preaching through John's gospel is the dolphins. You remember the dolphins last week? Somebody say, I don't remember. Someone who didn't hear last week's message said, dolphins. I don't know of any dolphins in the, in the text. But I was talking about these themes that jump up out of the water, kind of like dolphins. You're at the beach. You look out. You see dolphins. And they, they jump up and they submerge. They jump up and they submerge. Sometimes there's two of them and they submerge. But they're always there. And that's what these doctrines are doing. They jump up at us and then they submerge. But they're always there running underneath. Now, we're going to have plenty of time to develop this. But let me just say this. John... In terms of his message, okay, he's preaching repentance. 
isn't he? Now, a couple of things we need to know about this, and then we'll close. In preaching repentance and in telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees, don't presume on your biological connection to Abraham because that's not going to get you there. You must repent. You must repent. In other words, you must personally come to God with your particular sins and you must lift them to God. What John is preaching is the need for personal faith and repentance in order to come to salvation. You know, as we're studying the catechism, catechism question number 87 concerns repentance. It asks, and interestingly, it asks, what is repentance unto life? I think it's so interesting and it's so brilliant. It's so pastorally brilliant that they would ask the question that way. Instead of saying, what is repentance? They're more clear. They're saying, what is repentance unto life? Now, what does that mean? In other words, what is saving repentance? What is the real deal is what they're asking. What is the real deal? What is this repentance that really is real? And the answer is repentance unto life is a saving grace. What's that mean? That means it's a gift from God. If you've repented, don't think that you've repented because you're smarter or more holy than your neighbor who hasn't repented. You've repented because God has bestowed upon you a priceless gift, the gift of faith and repentance. It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, a true sense of our sin. You see, while we're looking to ourselves, we're never going to see ourselves as sinners. We are going to shine ourselves up. We're going to tell ourselves we are wonderful. But once we look away from ourselves, once we look away from ourselves, and let me back up again, because not all of us are telling ourselves that we're wonderful. Many of us, many of us are tormenting ourselves, saying that we're nothing. But even when we're doing that, why are we doing that? Because we're looking at some poster somewhere and we're wishing that we look like that. Or we're looking at something, or we're looking at our past and wishing we haven't, where we're looking at all of these things, wishing we haven't, we haven't done all these things. But back to this. We're never going to look to Jesus until we look away from ourselves. But as soon as we look away from ourselves, what happens? What happens to Isaiah when he sees Jesus in the temple? He falls down and, and cries out, woe is me, for I'm undone. Why? Because it's then that we begin to see our sin. That's a true sense of sin. What is repentance unto life? It's a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and here, this is often forgotten when we're talking about repentance, and this is so very important, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. Why is that so important? Who's going to repent unless they realize that in Christ there is a mercy available for them? We could, we could say, you know, I've blown it. And we could come to the conclusion that I've blown it so bad, there's no hope for me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is there is hope for you. The gospel is there hope. Why is there hope for you? Because there's mercy in Christ Jesus. That's why. There's mercy in Christ Jesus. And true repentance recognizes that there's mercy in Christ Jesus. So repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, 
doth with grief and hatred of sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. We'll study this more when we get to question 87, but I think you get the gist of it. That's repentance. That's repentance, isn't it? So John is preaching repentance. And what are we to do? Just repent and repent and repent? No, we're to repent to the Lord for our particular sins with apprehension of his mercy. In other words, in other words, taking the mercy that's being offered to us in Christ Jesus. Right? That's the message. That is the message. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. It's pointing back to the Old Testament, back to what they call the Paschal Lamb or the Passover Lamb. It's pointing back to the blood, you know, in Exodus. You know, in the final plague, God tells Moses to tell all Israel, listen, slaughter the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost, and the angel of destruction will pass over the house. What a graphic illustration. The angel of destruction will pass over the house. And if the angel of destruction sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, he will pass over the house. He will pass over the house. Because the blood of that lamb will be a substitute. The death of that lamb will be a substitute for the death of those inside the home. When John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin. What could be better than that? That past that haunts us, those sins that dig into us, what we were. If you're in Christ Jesus, it's what you were, it's not what you now are. If we're not in Christ Jesus yet this morning, it is still what we are. But what do we stand to be? Well, washed by the blood or however you want to put it. The promise isn't renovation. The promise isn't you can just be fixed up like you'd fix up an old car. No. Promise is you're going to be made brand new so that you are no longer what you once were. Paul tells us, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old has what? passed away. Behold, the new has come. Heavenly Father, we so thank you for the gospel. We so thank you for these truths, O Lord, that are more than just just lifting. They are transforming. O Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith and repentance. And we pray, O Father, that you would be pleased to shower this gift upon this area, Father. We thank you that you've been pleased, O Father, to shower this gift upon upon us this morning, Lord. And, O Father, as we look at the work that you have given John the Baptist to do, as he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, we see there are many obstacles Oh, Father, we are turned inward, always looking at ourselves. We can't be looking at you while we're looking at ourselves. Turn our hearts to see you. Turn our hearts to look to you. And as we behold you, may we see your sin. And may we also see the mercy that you're offering us. And, oh, Lord, give us repentance afresh this morning. Give us faith to see. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear.
And give us repentance that we would come clean with all of these things and ask to be washed, ask to be transformed into a new creature in Christ. Oh, Lord, we so thank you for this blessed message that regardless of what we have done in the past, we can have new life in Christ Jesus. And, oh, Lord, even as we come to new life in Christ Jesus, we thank you that as the day goes on and we have sinned and we have fallen short, we can come to you afresh and we can repent of those sins. And you are such a great Savior that you are sufficient to continually cleanse us. And you are always laboring to intercede for us. Oh, what we have in you. Teach us what we have in you, O oh Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.